Welcome to this episode of the Thirsty Podcast. I am Pastor Michael Zarling from Water of Life in Racine in Caledonia. And I am Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer from Water of Life also in Racine in Caledonia. This episode, we're going to be talking about the theme for this coming Sunday on godly government. And we're going to be looking at all three lessons, the gospel lesson, then the Old Testament lesson. We won't read it because it's very long from Daniel 1. We'll summarize it. Or how did you put it when we were talking before? I don't remember the exact quote, but I said, let me sum up. No, that'll take, no, no, however it goes. Let me sum up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. from from the Princess Bride, but uh, you probably didn't recognize it since Nathan butchered it. And then we'll really butchered it. <laughs> I apologize. And then we'll finish with a good discussion on Romans chapter thirteen. So the gospel lesson for Matthew twenty two. Uh, then the Pharisees went out and plotted together how to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said. We know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in accord with the truth. You are not concerned about gaining anyone's approval because you are not swayed by appearances. So tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus knew their evil purpose and said, Why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. He asked them, Whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied to him. Then he said to them, Therefore give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. Then they left him and went away. So, Nathan, you want to give us the background on when this is taking place, where it's taking place. We can talk then about who the Pharisees are. And this is one of the few times we encounter the Herodians because you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, but also the Herodians. Don't forget about the Zealots. The Zealots. Uh, So this takes place during Holy Week. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem teaching and preaching at the temple. Um, He's already been confronted at least one other time by the Pharisees, some of the chief priests and other leaders who are questioning uh, by what authority he was teaching these things. Um, These groups had all been plotting for some time to kill Jesus, He had just raised Lazarus from the dead not long before this, and so now they feel like that that was such a powerful miracle that people were starting to believe in him that they really felt they needed to act now. So this is kind of their their end game, and they really want to trap Jesus into something that they can then use as a rock-solid case for why they could, why he should be executed. And so this is one where they're trying to get him either to say, no, we should not support Caesar, and then they could go to both Herod and um, the governor and say, see, this man is preaching insurrection, this man is preaching against Caesar, or they could get him to agree that we should support Caesar, and then they could stir up popular Jewish support against Jesus and trap him that way and say, see, listen, this man is supporting our oppressors. Yeah, and... When I hear Matthew writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that they were plotting together how to trap Jesus in his words, I'm not going to mess this quote up. It's a trap! That's Admiral Akbar in Star Wars. It is. Yes. Uh, and they're trying to trap Jesus because, uh, and it's, I think it's a great question. It's a great trap because if Jesus answers one way, if he says, well, you should not pay taxes to Caesar, you can imagine that the Pharisees and Herodians are going to go to, uh, to Governor Pilate and say, hey, he's, uh, he's saying don't pay tribute, don't pay your taxes, and which they're going to get arrested. Which is entirely hypocritical because that's, that's what they themselves believed is that they should not be subject to the Roman authorities. Yeah, And then if Jesus would say, and we need to pay taxes to Caesar, then the people are going to get upset because uh, Matthew doesn't really describe that there's a lot of people here, but this is going to be in the temple courtyard where Jesus is teaching Monday and Tuesday. This is Passover week. Uh, There are tens of thousands, if not way more people 
that have come to Jerusalem for the Passover, these pilgrims, uh, and uh, they're going to be listening, and they're going to get upset at Jesus. So that's why uh, it's a great question. It's a great trap. And if I remember, this isn't the first time they've tried this trap with him either. There's been a couple times where they've tried to craft questions uh, to get him to answer one way or the other, and Jesus sees right to the heart of it and gives them an answer that they simply are not prepared to respond to. And we see that again here, that they don't know how to respond to this question because Jesus is getting right to the heart of the matter, that there are two kingdoms and that we, as citizens on this world, we live in both of those kingdoms and have duties to both of those kingdoms. Right. Yeah, so he says, after receiving a coin, and there I imagine Jesus doesn't have a coin. He seems to be pretty poor. Uh, it says in scripture, he has no place to lay his head. Foxes have holes in the ground, birds have the nests and the trees, but the man, the son of man has no place to lay his head. That probably means coins too. I mean, he has to send Peter out to go fishing to get a coin, a drachma, from the belly of a fish to pay the temple tax. And so Jesus then says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is talking about how, you know, and we'll get to in a little bit in the Romans text, that there are no authorities on earth that have not been established by God. Government comes from God. Um, And Jesus is saying, well, right now the Roman authorities are the one that are governing our land. And while many of the people living in Judea at the time did not agree necessarily with all the Roman policies towards them, the Romans were using their army to protect the people of Judea. They were doing other things there uh, that were for the benefit of the people. And Jesus was saying, you do owe allegiance to this king. And that's why he uses the coin. He shows the coin right there, the coin they all used, the coinage they got from Rome. And he says, whose picture is this? What Caesar's. And so if you look at what Martin Luther wrote in 1531, uh, it was called, uh, it's his letter, it's a, a warning to my dear German people. And then... Lutheran pastors in the city of Magdeburg, while they are being uh, laid siege for 400 days by the Emperor Charles V forces who had united with the Pope's forces, uh, that the pastors in the city of Magdeburg, they write the Magdeburg Confession, and they quote Luther, and in both of those uh, Lutheran confessors say, yeah, we give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we do not give to Caesar the things that do not belong to Caesar. So what they're saying is, Jesus is saying this in the positive, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But we, with common sense, need to take the negative, that when Caesar is taking things that don't belong to him, whether it's, uh, they call him Caesar Charles V, or it's a president, a governor, a mayor, a local school board, whatever it is, if they take authority that does not belong to them, then they are going beyond their scope. They're not staying in their lane. Something, and I don't honestly remember where I read this. I just came across this recently and had not heard of it before. And Michael, maybe you could add a little bit to this. I had heard that it's possible that the the coin that Jesus was using had Caesar's head on the one side and then flipping it over, it had a reference to the cult of Caesar where Caesar was, you know, claiming godhood. And some commentators say, well, Jesus flipped that coin and said, and give unto God what is God's and saying, see, now here's where Caesar is claiming beyond his authority. He is not divine. He is not a god. You don't owe him worship and obedience in that sense. Right. I think that was Professor John Brug when he was teaching on that, on coinage and so forth with his book on the notes from the EHV study Bible. Yeah, and we can touch then before we go on to the Old Testament lesson, and you kind of reference this, Nathan, of the two kingdoms. So this is something that Luther really referenced a lot was the doctrine of the two kingdoms. There is the left-hand kingdom, God's earthly kingdom here on earth, and then there is the right-hand kingdom of God's spiritual kingdom 
here on earth. And we as Christian citizens, we dwell in both. And so that's the difficulty always is how do I live my faith while also uh, you know, being in a left-hand kingdom of this world? Uh, and I talk about a lot of times it might be easier for you and I, Nathan, we dwell a lot in the right-hand kingdom. We're in the office, we're out the hospital, funeral home, and so forth. We dwell a lot in the right-hand kingdom. But our listeners and the people to whom we serve in the ministry, they're dwelling all the time in the left-hand kingdom, but at the same time, living as right-hand kingdom people. That's hard to do. It is hard to do. It is hard to go back and forth between those two at times, um, especially trying to confess and profess your faith as a Christian in that left-hand kingdom. Um, I think a lot of times we like to talk about how, you know, it's harder now to be a Christian. Um, But I would say, you know, you look at the long-term historical trends, it's probably no different now to be a Christian that at any other point in history, there's just different forms of persecution that we're enduring now. Um, but we've always been a minority. Um, as Jesus has said in the last couple of weeks in our parables, many are called, few are chosen. The kingdom of God in this world, the believers are never going to be a majority of those that, that live here. We are always going to be a small remnant. Yeah, and we talk in America about a separation of church and state. And so for us in present-day America, is it easier or more difficult to be Christians in a play, in a country where we're supposed well, supposedly there's a separation of church and state? Or was it easier or more difficult in previous times where you had church and state commingled? Like the Old Testament lesson of Daniel in Babylon, where a king was like a god. Uh, Later on in Daniel 6, where you have Daniel being thrown in the lion's den for not praying to King Darius for for that month. That was a, because Darius, like Pharaoh of the Egyptians, while the Israelites were in captivity there, he was one of the gods. Uh, and, and even in the Jewish culture, well, the Roman culture, certainly, as you were talking about, that there was the cult of Caesar. And I think you could argue even at Luther's time, there also was a very m- large mingling of the two um, that, well, you think in medieval Europe, you could say nominally everyone that was alive was a Christian but it actually probably was one of the low points right before the birth of Luther of people who actually had saving Christian faith. Sure, you were baptized, but that was because it was a law. Everyone had to be baptized, um, and the state would enforce that. But were those people actually Christian? Did they actually have saving faith? I mean, that's something that's debated. Right, and again, here in America, we talk about a separation of church and state, and you might even have people saying, hey, if you are a religious person, then you should not be bringing your faith, your beliefs into, say, government policies. No, that's not the way it works. It's uh, that the state is not supposed to impose a state religion here in America. That's a separation of church and state. But when it comes to us as Christians, and I just have a sentence or two about this in my sermon, is one of the ways that we can influence godly government is by being involved in godly government, that we need to be bringing right-hand kingdom beliefs, morality into the left-hand kingdom, and instead of separating ourselves so far away from it, and if we do that and we hunker down in our little right-hand kingdom, well, then the left-hand kingdom is not ever going to remain morally neutral because it's being run by sinful people. It will always become more uh, immoral, more pagan, and then we're allowing the pagans, the unbelievers, to influence our laws, our culture, and so forth. Rather, as Christians, we need to be there not to make a not to make God's kingdom here on earth like a Christian utopia, heaven on earth, but to say, uh, here's the way I live as a Christian. I'm going to uh, 
give my bold confession of faith in the way I live, in the way I talk, and in my attitudes. And what further muddies the waters in America is that because the Christian church has had such a profound impact on Western civilization, um, and so much of our jurisprudence has pulled information and case law out of Scripture, has based it off the Ten Commandments, that sort of thing. You have people today who want to completely eliminate any religious ideology from government and make it purely secular, and you've got this strange kind of marriage between Christian history and what our legal system is based off of, that you can't really divorce those two things just because the church was such a dominant force in European history for so many centuries. Anything else you want to bring up with the gospel lesson? I don't think I have anything else. All right, then we'll go to Daniel 1. And you can read it on your own, listen to it on Sunday uh, as your pastor reads it from the lectern. Just to summarize this, and this is what I'm going to be preaching on on Sunday, you've got Daniel and his three friends, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They are probably Jew- they are definitely Jewish people, but they're Jewish teenagers. They're either royalty from the Jewish families, or they're at least higher up and very well-educated young men. They were carried off into captivity in Babylon, and then the the Babylonians, it's not the slavery we think of. Uh, They didn't make the people slaves. They allowed them to own land, to uh, have positions of power, even to have positions of authority in their government. Uh, They would take the best and the brightest to serve in the government. And I'm not completely clear on this timeline in my head again, but I think, you know, sometimes we talk about the Babylonian captivity happening in 586 uh, B.C., but there really were several phases where the Babylonians came in and took people back. And it seems like Daniel was in the first and earliest of those, and it really does seem that the Babylonians kind of came in and took the cream of the crop in a way, you know, you think about that. If you come in and take your best and brightest young leaders— that's really kind of hamstringing a society. It's weakening a society for later destruction. So my, th- my sermon theme for Sunday is confession without compromise. And there are three examples I give that's based on Daniel 1 where these four young teenage men did not compromise their faith. Uh, that there they are in the Babylonian government. They have to study this Babylonian heathen culture. But they could do that without compromise. They had to learn the language, the literature of Babylon, but they could do that without compromise. Uh, They were giving new names. Daniel is called uh, Belshazzar, and then we know the other three men as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rakshak and Benny from VeggieTales. But again, they could do that without compromise. But what Daniel and the three men could not do without compromise was eat the food that was going to be served at them from the king's table. And there's three reasons for that is because the food would, could very well be unclean foods. Uh, it could be food that was not properly prepared because the blood would not be drained from the animals. And the Jewish men and women, they God said you can't eat any blood. And the third reason is oftentimes the foods as well as the wine would have been sacrificed to the heathen Babylonian gods first and then they would have put it on the king's table. And for those three reasons, Daniel says uh, to his attendant, we're not going to eat that, but we're going to eat vegetables instead. What's interesting too is something I just thought of as you can see these Jewish young men, this is really all they had left of being able to worship God. They no longer had access to the temple in Jerusalem. It hadn't been destroyed yet, but they were no longer there. They couldn't take place in any of the ritual feasts. They couldn't do any of any of the other things that were so closely tied with Jewish religion because they were so far from their home. And so maintaining some of these purity laws was really the only thing they had left to show their worship and devotion to God. And uh, a big thing, too, when I taught this in Bible study uh, several weeks ago was that 
they're going to eat only vegetables. And if you know me, I am not a vegetable vegetable person. Even though I've got a huge garden, uh, there's like nine vegetables in my garden that I will eat. So thankfully, the Hebrew word here for vegetables also carries with it the idea of foods that are sown, so like grains and breads, because a man can live on bread alone and God's word. Uh, and so th- they're saying, hey, to the attendant, who's terrified. He's afraid that if these four teenagers are not eating the good food on the king's table, they're going to become weak and withered, and then he's going to have his head lopped off. But instead, God causes the attendant to be favorably disposed toward Daniel. He says, all right, we'll do this for 10 days, and then we'll see. And God allows these four men to be healthier than the other men, probably Jewish men, but maybe people from other cultures too that are there in the king's palace and eating that food. And these four men are healthier and than, than everyone else. And so they continue to do that probably for the rest of their lives or at least during the three years while they're in training in the king's palace. Maybe, uh, maybe later on when Daniel and these three men, when they become uh, big, big wigs in the Babylonian government, they're eating their own food, they're preparing it themselves and so forth, and they don't have to worry about these, these Jewish ceremonial di- dietary laws and breaking them because they're cooking their own meals. I think it's interesting, too. You see Daniel also in this. While he wants to maintain Jewish purity laws, he also is concerned for this official and does not want him to get punished for what they do either. And so, yeah, he sets up, he said, test us, see which, see if this works out and we can talk about it then. Yeah. And then again, my, my sermon theme is confession without compromise. And to say here, he's resisting. Uh, He's not revolting. He's not rebelling. Uh, He is resisting. He's just saying, no, this is not good. I'm not going to compromise our faith. Uh, I'm going to do something else. But he was respectful in doing that, and God blesses his resistance. Uh, and, and then if you look a few chapters later, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they also resist. They're, it's a little more clear-cut because there's no sinful, well, it could be a sinful thing here where they're going to eat the, uh, the wrong foods, or, but later on it becomes very easy to see where it would have been wrong as they're told to bow down and worship the golden statue. And they say, we're not going to do that. But again, they're respectful. They're saying, oh, king, and, you know, don't take this the wrong way. Uh, You know, you are a wise and majestic king and so forth. And they are respectful in their resistance. And that's the key. When we are going to confess our faith, we need to always remain on the high ground so that people see us, and then they see, okay, they're resisting as Christians. Okay, they have a good attitude. They have a good reputation. There must be something going on that they're resisting in this way. And that's what you learn with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, and it's interesting later on, too, in Daniel, when we get to the story of Daniel and the lion's den, there it was. Um, You can pray to no one else except the king, and Daniel refuses to do that. And it would have been very easy for him to go at home at night, shut his door, go in his room by himself, and only pray to God. And no one would know. And yet he seems to make a public confession. How he did that exactly, did he have his windows open or whatever he did, the people who were out to get him knew what he was doing. And he said, no, I am not going to compromise on my faith. But then he was also willing to endure the consequences for that not compromising. And then with those consequences, I think a lot of times we as Christians are afraid of the consequences. And we might be praying, you know, Lord, uh, you know, keep our country, you know, more Christian. Because, you know, let's, let's face it, our, our country had been uh, founded maybe not as a Christian nation, but at least on Christian morals and, you know, that Christian foundation on God's word. And it's not that way anymore. And we can become upset as Christian citizens saying, you know, because we start feeling the pressure on us more and more. And yet, we shouldn't be afraid 
that the state might be coming down harder on us as Christians, uh, making Christianity harder, that's okay because Jesus says this is going to happen. He said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. This is one of the ways that we take up our cross and follow Jesus, that we can be like the apostles that after they had been in prison and whipped, they come out of prison and they're told, you know, stop preaching in this name of Jesus. And they said, no, we must obey God rather than men. And they, they're they praising God. They're going, woohoo, because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. So when we are brought before kings and courts and councils, that shouldn't terrify us. That's a, that should embolden us to give a strong confession of Christ and not compromise. Give us that opportunity for a bold confession because Jesus promises us don't be afraid when you're brought before kings and courts and councils because the Holy Spirit will give you the right words to say. Yeah, I think I'm, oh, now I'm going to blank out his name. I think it was George, George the Margrave of Brandenburg uh, when he was standing before Emperor Charles V at um, the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. Um, he made some comment about, well, you'll have to take my head. And Charles is said to have, well, he didn't understand German real well. Um, and when that was translated for him, he, he said, I think in broken German, no, 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 no head, no head. And he was shocked that these men were willing to face death instead of compromise on the principles of the Lutheran confessions. And with that, as we're getting closer to the Lutheran Reformation, uh, Nathan and I talk about this, about which movie to watch. You can watch the old uh, black and white version. That's a great version. You know, it, the, character, the actor that plays Luther, you know, it's a black and white movie, but you can almost see his face getting red when he is at the Diet of Worms and he's giving his bold stance that he will not recant. Here I stand, I can do no other. And yet, uh, the one maybe some of you are more familiar with is one that came out, man, it's got to be almost two decades ago. The Luther movie. And that's a very good movie, too. Uh, and one thing is uh, the guy that plays, um, who's, who's collecting the, the indulgences? Tetzel? Te- yeah, thank you. Tetzel. That the character that plays Tetzel is also the same character that plays Doc Ock in the second Spider-Man movie, just in case you didn't know that. Well, I always struggle. I honestly have not seen the newer Luther movie. Oh. I just struggle with the guy that plays Luther is the is the communist commissar in Enemy at the Gate. So okay. I have I have trouble seeing him as the as the hero of the Reformation. Well, and then you see Tetzel as Doc Ock. But uh, I bring those up because at the end of the newer Luther movie, they do reference the Diet of Augsburg. And there they have the, the Lutheran princes that some of them are standing, some are kneeling in the robes and so forth, and they're bowing their heads. And that's in reference to what you're talking about, That because they don't really explain it at all. You have to kind of know the background, either before or afterwards. But that's what it's referring to, is the Diet of, uh, of Augsburg and these Lutheran princes, these electors, they're willing to, and they're laymen. They are not pastors. They are willing to give up their lives their heads for this bold confession of faith that they had just presented before the emperor. There, as I just said, in front of kings, God, the Holy Spirit, gave them the right words to say. Those, those words that we still use as one of our foundational confessions to this day. I believe they use that verse. Either they used it at the diet or, or later on, that verse became associated with the Augsburg Confession specifically that we will give an accounting before governors and kings um, as a, that they understood that was exactly what they were doing. All right, so we'll spend the rest of our time with the epistle lesson. Do you want to read the Romans 13 text? Sure. Uh, from Romans 13, everyone must submit to the governing authorities for no authority exists except by God. And the authorities that do exist have been established by God. Therefore, the one who rebels against the authority is opposing God's institution, and those who oppose will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to evil. Would you like to have no fear of the one in authority? 
Do what is good and you will receive praise from him, because he is God's servant for your benefit. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because he does not carry the sword without reason. He is God's servant, a punisher to bring wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore it is necessary to submit not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For this reason you also pay taxes, because the authorities are God's ministers who are employed to do this very thing. Pay what you owe to all of them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So when Paul says everyone must submit to the governing authorities, what does that word submit mean? Well, submission has different connotations in Scripture. Um, but nowhere does it seem to have this idea of blind obedience, um, that there is to be respect that is to be given to those who are in authority, but never is that respect um, or obedience absolute. Um, we talk about this in other instances where there's that that issue, that relationship of authority. Um, while we expect children to be to honor their parents we would not if a child's in an abusive household we would not say that that child must remain there um, because they're being abused same in situations of spousal abuse we would not tell a wife or a husband that is being abused by their spouse that they must be obedient to that person um, because that relationship has been broken right so submit is not equal excuse me, not equal to obey. <coughs> and that, uh, you know, using the example like you did of a wife to her husband or a child to their parents, that they are willingly trusting in the leadership of their uh, their husband, of their parents. And it's the same thing that Paul is saying here. And I think sometimes we take Romans 13 just by itself. We forget Romans 13 follows Romans 12. Romans 12, in context, is talking about Christian living. And then Paul says, well, here's one example of living as a Christian. Here you submit to the governing authorities. And Martin Luther has a lot to say in his large, in the large catechism on the fourth commandment on uh, submission. But more than that of submission of citizens to the governing authorities or children to their parents, he is talking about parents. They have a responsibility to be good leaders in the home. And then he applies that also to maybe the parental role of governing authorities. In order to have their children, their citizens, follow them in willful trusting, honor, obedience, respect, submission— they need to be uh, leading the people properly, like a good parent would do. So he spends more time, I think, Nathan, you and I, and a lot of pastors, when we teach the fourth commandment in catechism class, we're talking to students, to children, so we spend a lot of time on their role in keeping the fourth commandment from maybe the bottom up. And we forget sometimes to apply the fourth commandment from the top down for parents and others in authority. Well, I think this is something I've, I've tried to model with my children because there are times when I have definitely made poor and wrong decisions. And in those instances, in love, I say I'm sorry, I repent, and I ask for the forgiveness of my children um, because that's what leadership looks like. It's that idea that they submit, but I also have a duty to look out for their welfare. It's the same way that Jesus talks about the duty that husbands have towards their wives. Yes, the wife is to be submissive to her husband, but the husband is to love her in the sense that Christ loved the church and be willing to die for her. And then things up to that, it means that at times I have to put my own desires on the back burner and do things that are for my wife's benefit and not necessarily for my own benefit. And so when Paul talks about uh, everyone must submit to the governing authorities for they are God's servants to do you good, then we also need to make sure we bring in Revelation chapter 13 where 
Uh, Jesus has given a revelation to a vision to John in Revelation 12 of seeing Satan as this huge seven-headed red dragon. And then in chapter 13, he sees the beast coming out of the sea as kind of the, the pet of the dragon. He wants to look like the dragon. And so he has seven heads uh, and he's coming out of the, the sea and then he is going to be persecuting the, uh, the Christians. And so that's the symbol of the government that persecutes. And their governing authorities can serve Satan's will. They're submitting to the will of Satan. And so at times, the government or particular governing authorities are following God's will, and therefore they're submitting to God. They're acting as his servants. But that same government and same governing authorities with their sinful nature in the government can also submit to Satan's will and therefore they're acting like this beast out of the sea and then they're no longer acting as God's servants. They're acting as Satan's servants. Now, we understand God is in control because Paul says every authority has been established by God. Even evil, tyrannical, pagan uh, persecuting governments are are used by God, Uh, but he does not uh, cause them to do their evil, uh, unbelieving, pagan things. He just uses them. That's sometimes hard for us to understand. Yeah, and and one of the things also, too, that we, we struggle with, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more in depth in a little bit here, is, you know, when the government is acting as Satan's servant, well, how do Christians resist that? Um, because we don't just blindly do what the government says. We've, we've talked an awful lot about um, in our circles about, well, if the government tells you to do something that's clearly a sin, we don't do that. Well, how do you define what is clearly a sin? What is that line? And I think where that line is is where we have so much debate. Um, and I think we need to be careful about um, declaring one side or the other to have sinned because we're getting into an area of conscience that's not clearly defined in Scripture. Um, and it is something that, I mean, these are things that have split the church in the past. I think of the, the Donatist controversy in the, um, the early centuries where you had people, the government said, you need to deny Christ, sign this piece of paper. And there were some Christians that said, absolutely not. I can't, I can't sign that. That's that's breaking the first commandment, and we're killed for that. Uh, and there were other Christians that said, I'm being threatened with death. What does it matter if I sign a meaningless piece of paper? I still have faith. And the church was divided on that. There was a long time that those who, I think they were called the lapsari because they had, they had fallen into that sin, they had signed the paper. For a long time, they were, they were denied communion. They were told that they were lesser Christians, and that the church had to work that out, that you know, even if it is a matter of sin, there aren't sins that automatically exclude you forever uh, from the Christian fellowship. And this is this is difficult. And this is what I talk about in my sermon for Sunday. This is a difficult way of uh, how to do this. Only Christ did this perfectly. Because if we just go with blind obedience, that's really no different than worship. And Jesus says in uh Revelation chapter 13, that the whole goal of the beast out of the sea is to get people to worship it and then worship Satan. So uh, that can happen when there's tyranny. But then the opposite is true. If we always, uh, if we're resisting to the point that it becomes revolt and revolution, then then there's anarchy. And so uh, you can't go too far to one side to allow tyranny. You can't go too far to the other side and allow anarchy. Uh, since you mentioned Donatus and Lapsari, uh, I figured I'd bring in the Prussian Union just to make it sound like I know a little bit what I'm talking about. Uh, but there, in the Prussian Union, so there again, you had the king of Prussia was forcing together the, the Lutherans and the, the, the Protestants Yeah, uh, because they were still separate from the Catholic Church. But... Lutherans did not believe the same thing as the rest of the Protestant church. And so one of the things uh, that would come from that is that 
I forget. Do you maybe do you remember Nathan? Which one knelt? The Lutherans or because at communion, because they would be forced to commune together. Uh, I don't remember which one it was. I believe, and this is not an area I am familiar with many different parts of history because it's one of my nerdy passions, but this is not one I know. I believe it was the Lutherans, and I think that's why part of the reason we retained the kneeling, kneeling in our congregations for so long. I could be completely yeah, wrong it, of that, and someone please feel <laughs> free to correct me on this. It's, yeah, I don't remember either. It's one or the other that... Maybe the Protestants knelt and the Lutherans stood, or if the Protestants were standing, then the Lutherans knelt. And that was just a visible way to show we are different than these Protestants, but the king of Prussia is forcing us to worship and commune together. So that's where a lot of our Lutherans in both the Missouri Synod and the Wisconsin Synod came from. Here, uh, whenever I travel somewhere, uh, two questions are always asked me. Did you bike here? And then the second question and more frequent question is, oh, Zarling, are you related to this other Zarling? And because there's a lot of Zarlings that are pastors, and I'm not related to any of them. But the, the story is uh, one of my cousins uh, almost two decades ago had come up with uh, the family history. And so a lot of those Zarlings in our church body that I'm not related to I am very distantly, the story is like two, bro- two Zarling brothers had come over. They'd be like my great-great-great-grandfathers. They, they came over together because of the Prussian Union, that there were a lot of Lutherans that fled this union where they were forced to worship and commune with those who were not united with in the faith. And they said, well, we'll go to America where we have religious freedom. And they settled around uh, my family was in the Jackson area, Milwaukee area, all that those areas, and, and that became a lot of the area for the Wisconsin Synod. And so there's a way of God, the Lord of the church, the God who is over both kingdoms, using something that he had established. He, he did not make the king of Prussia do that, but he allowed that to happen so that he could then allow a, his corner of his kingdom that we call the Wisconsin Senate to be formed in this area. Well, I mean, this is something that was instrumental in the formation of both the Wisconsin Senate and the Missouri Senate is that they came over here because of, of things that were being, practices that were being forced on them uh, back in Germany to that idea to, to foment union. Um, and again, that would be an example, too, of where the state had overstepped its bounds um, because of the state church system. It was the state that was paying the pastors. It was the state that was dictating what should be taught. And quite honestly, I think part of it was the state was not educated enough to know all the nuances of the different sects and just was like, well, you're not Catholics. How much different can they be? Just stop complaining about it and do your thing. And many of our Lutheran fathers said, no, we, we can't in good conscience do this. And so, yeah, emigrated to the New World to be able to practice their faith in peace. And then uh, verse 2, Paul writes, Therefore the one who rebels against the authority is opposing God's institution. And sadly, I think some people say that whoever resists the authority is opposing God's will. No, Resist and rebel, revolt, are two different things. It's when you're trying to overthrow the government, that's rebellion. But when you're resisting, uh, you're trying to curb the sinful nature of those in government. You're trying to curb their sinful behavior, their evil behavior. It's the same way that God uses the governing authorities to curb our sinful nature so that there isn't just chaos, in the same way, we are called by God to curb the sinful natures of those in government so that they don't become tyrannical. And God uses us both as God's servants. And what makes it challenging is that there is no cut and fast rule on where that line between resistance and rebellion is. Part of it's going to be determined by the laws of the country that someone is living in. 
Um, the Lutheran reformers talked about this with the constitution of, well, if you want to call it a constitution, that might be a general term. I mean, somebody was telling me that if you ever want to get lost, try to figure out what the actual political makeup of the Holy Roman Emperor, Empire was. Um, but the point remains that you know we're, we're going to be placed in different situations in our lives. Christians are going to live under different types of rule, and that's going to determine how they're able to resist. Like, for example, in the United States, we have the First Amendment, which allows us to speak our opposition, uh, to write our opposition against policies we don't agree with. Um, other places... And, and then there's the Second Amendment that's there to protect the First Amendment. Yes, but yeah. other places like Canada and Britain do not have that freedom of speech enshrined in their forms of government, and so they're well, are you rebelling if you're doing if you're speaking in a way that they said you cannot? Then that's where then a Christian has to decide in conscience: is this rebellion or is this still just resistance? And then when people say, "Well, as Christian citizens, you shouldn't even resist," then we we need to know our civics and we have to know our founding documents where it says that it's our calling. It's it actually says uh, in the second paragraph of the Constitution that it is our duty to resist when we see the government going beyond where it should be in America and become tyrannical. So then I push back on those who are pushing it back on me and say, how can it be uh, illegal or even sinful to resist in America when it's in our founding documents, it's in our laws that we're allowed to resist? So uh, we have to be careful. And I always say this too, the problem is we just don't know our civics well enough. As well as our scripture and its application. Well, I'd I say we have to be careful in how far we resist, but I think yeah. we, we also need to be careful as brothers and sisters talking to each other that to realize we're, we're going to come to different interpretations because... Uh, maybe applications. Applications. Okay. Because God does not give us a list of, in 21st century America, here are the, here's the line where this is resistance and this is rebellion. We, we don't have that line. Um is it rebellion if the government passes a law that impacts, you know, say our church body in some way financially and we continue to file appeals even after several lower courts had ruled? Is it resistance to keep fighting it through purely legal means? I think some would argue that, well, if the decision's been made, you must abide with it. And I think others would say, no, if we have legal means to resist this, then we must continue to resist. Right. And I think what you were saying there, and you brought it up twice, is really important for our people to listen to, is that uh, we need to keep the Eighth Commandment when we're discussing this application of Scripture. And I always say, we give the benefit of the doubt to our sanctified saints. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ, meaning they are the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ himself. Lord willing, they are trying to make these godly decisions in a sanctified, a holy manner with faith in Christ, more so than uh, un, you know, than governing authorities whom we na- may not know and they may be believers or not. We have to give someone the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and I would pray that we would do that to our brothers and sisters in Christ and discuss things. And yeah, and like you said, we may come down on different ways to apply the scripture, and that's okay. And we, we just keep discussing over and over again and saying saying all right you're on that side now you're against me that's that's not right uh let's apply some of these other verses verse three for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to evil so there uh we need to trust and respect those in authority over us knowing that they can bring the sword down on us but again uh, our lutheran reformers talk about this is uh we take the negative of what Paul is saying here of saying, all right, they are a terror for those who are doing evil. And so if we're doing evil, we should expect the sword. But the Lutheran reformers also say, but if they're using the sword upon those who are doing good, then that may be the time that we have to resist. I was going to say, because we know, oh man, I'm really bad at remembering specific scripture references but you know it's the bible talks about in the later days there will be those that call good evil and evil good and you know at what point do we start saying 
no, what the, what the government is saying is good, is in fact evil. This is morally reprehensible, and I think we could spend the rest of the time here talking about examples in our in our culture today um, and examples throughout history where we have a duty to speak the truth in love, um, but still also maintaining that line between resistance and rebellion. Uh, but I think at the same time, I think the Lutheran reformers and scripture itself too says at a point that while we are not to rebel, we still do have a God-given right to defend ourselves. Um, but then again, too, that's a struggle for each individual Christian. There is a time for, I'm going to do everything within my power to preserve my life. Or on the other hand, I am going to make a bold confession for the faith and be martyred as a confession to the truth. Sure, an application of that might be when the the government is saying you can't, uh, you have to use someone's preferred pronouns. And so I have a, a member who is in the public school system, and you know she had a young lady uh, in the grade school that was going to be coming back to school, now supposedly transitioning from a girl to a boy. What does she do? In love, and that's what people in the culture would say, it, she needs to love that student and use his preferred pronouns as him and her. But is that really love? Because she would then be saying a lie, a lie that is being promoted by the governing authorities in that school. And then you know she could also be fired, prosecuted, and so forth. Or another example comes to mind very similar. What do you do as parents? Uh, you have a daughter, I have lots of daughters, that if we're in a school setting and they're playing another school, but now that school has boys on their team that are pretending to be girls, do we let our girls go out there and play those sports where those boys are going to naturally be stronger and faster and bigger, but and then our girls could be injured, but... Uh, you know, then we do we as fathers, do we just go along with it? Do we stand up against it? Do we talk to our coaches and athletic directors and say, you need to get out of that game, you need to get out of that league? But again, now there's going to be bad publicity in uh, in the media, the government, and so forth. I just want to kind of add on the pronouns thing. You know, what adds, what complicates it too is we want to provide a witness to the world to the truth. Mm. But at the same time, we don't want to feel, we don't want to come across as if we're, we're attacking someone. We never want to, well, I, never, I don't want to say never, because there are times when confession confession matters. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is that sometimes we would not go out of, our, maybe we wouldn't use, we wouldn't call someone who's biologically male her, but maybe we wouldn't make a point of saying him all the time, we would use their name or something like that, where we're still confessing the truth, but we're also not coming down in attack mode, so to say. Yeah, and a big thing that I don't think we are very good at doing, just as Christians in general, people often know what we're against, and we're very good at saying, too, this is what we're against in the negative. We need to do a better job. We have to practice it, though, uh, you know, in private so we can do it in public, and be in the positive. This is what we're for. You know, we're, you know, like you said, not coming down on this young man who's confused. We're for our daughters and protecting their rights, their freedoms, and so forth. And so we got to come across that way, but we're not always very good at doing that. Same thing with, it comes to, say, abortion. We're, uh, we are for life when it comes to homosexuality or gay marriage. We are for the Sixth Commandment and uh, protecting the, the roles of man and woman inside the bonds of holy matrimony. And I would say along with that, unfortunately, we ourselves, and I just don't, I just, I'm saying this because I don't just want to cast stones at others. We're not always great at expressing ourselves. We've probably, well, not probably, we are harsher than we need to be in some situations, um, and that's not always good, but as we know, there are groups within the broader Christian context that make terrible, inflammatory statements that may be technically confessing the truth of God's word, 
but they're said in such a hateful way that it only causes division and actually undermines our ability to spread the gospel because then the world takes that and uses it and says, see, this is what Christians are. They're hateful, hateful people. How can they have anything good in them? Um, and it's, it's walking that line of confessing the truth, but also being able to spread the gospel message, which ultimately is what saves. Because you're, you're not going to convince an unbeliever. There's no regenerate man in an unbeliever um, to, to live a life of sanctification. They need the message of the gospel to bring them to spiritual life, and only then can real change occur in that person. Right. So it's kind of like, uh, I just heard this theme recently, it's, con- it's confession, not compromise. <laughs> Uh, and then, good alliteration there, again, yes, too. Yeah. Um, just then, Paul talks about application, uh, verses six and following. For this reason, you pay taxes, because the authorities are God's ministers, or servants who are employed to do this very thing. Uh, they're uh, a reminder that they are our servants. They are ministers. That here in America, we are blessed that. The governing authorities are over us, but also that we are over them. We appoint them, we vote for them, we pay for them. So they are our ministers. Uh, And then pay what you owe to all of them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. That's hard. I I was just going to say, those last two are are very mm-hmm. are very hard because we live in such a divisive political situation and a political situation that is built almost entirely on making ad hominem attacks against the other person, um, and yeah, it it's it's hard, um, especially when you see leaders on both sides that live morally reprehensible lives and may not be good people. Those are the people that have been placed in authority over them. We still need to show them honor and respect. And I think one of the ways we can do that very publicly in the church is to regularly include those people in our prayers, to pray for them. And we may have people that say afterwards, well, I don't like the way this president or this governor is doing things. And we would say, well, you may not agree with them, but they still are the servant that God has placed over you. And while you may disagree with them, you still need to pray for that person, pray for them to repent, pray for them, even if they're not a believer, that God would help them use earthly wisdom to govern right and justly. Right. And so the example I often use on this in teaching the fourth commandment to my seventh and eighth graders is that years ago, President Clinton was speaking at a college graduation, and there was at least one young Republican there, and then he refused to shake President Clinton's hand. And so I asked the students, well, what do you think about that? And they said, that's not respectful. And that's the key of, uh, they understood that here is a young man that did not agree with the president. And that's fine, but you still are respectful to him uh, even though you may disagree very strongly. Uh, and, and that's hard. And like you said, Nathan, we pray for them. So listen in the prayer of the church for petitions. Nathan and I try and do this, maybe not all the time, but pretty regularly, to have a petition, a paragraph, on praying for our government leaders. And when I write those, I write them uh, in such a way as, God, please lead these leaders to submit to your will, but hold them accountable when they aren't. And so the prayer of the day for this Sunday that we'll hear in our church is, O Lord our God, so govern the nations on earth and direct the affairs of this world that your church may worship you in peace and joy. That's praying for the left-hand kingdom so the right-hand kingdom might spread in peace and joy. And I think one of the the things with that, too, is we're praying for a government that allows us to spread God's kingdom that doesn't necessarily mean that there's one form of earthly government um, that is correct. Um, you could have, you know, for example, a monarchy where God's, they rule well and they rule justly and God's word can, can spread. Um, however, I would also say there do seem to be some form of governments that are foundationally 
in opposition to the truth of God's word that make it incredibly difficult um, for the word to be spread. But that's where we put our trust in the fact that um, God's word is powerful. And like the, the motto of the Reformation, God's word will remain into eternity, that nothing that this world does can ever destroy God's word. It will continue to work. It will continue to convert right up until the, our Lord returns in glory. So this is... Uh, this Sunday is really a lot about sanctification, uh, living lives of uh, holy living. So we pray that the Lord would bless us as Christian citizens, confessing, not compromising. So this is Pastor Michael Zarling with Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer from the Pit of Despair at Water of Life Lutheran Church. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift You are thirsty, my friends, so drink deeply from the water of life.